At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as an athletic gear for firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your turnout gear. Get the full story at msafire.com slash globe. Hi, welcome to Today on Firehouse. My name is Peter Matthews. I'm the editor of Firehouse Magazine. And I'd like to thank everybody for joining us to listen to this podcast today. We think it's a a very important topic to cover with all that's going on uh, with COVID-19 across the country. Um, A big thank you to all the first responders, whether you're firefighters, EMS, rescue squads, uh, law enforcement, um, dispatchers, and the healthcare folks for all the work you're doing um, around the clock to make sure things are being done as quickly and as safely as possible. Uh, A big uh, tip of the helmet to you for all your work. Uh, We understand, you know, there's a lot going on. I have a brother who's a paramedic in New York. I also have a lot of friends I've been talking to back in New York and across the Northeast where this seems to really be hitting home. And there's a lot of emotion uh, on the responders' behalf. There's just so much going on. One call to the next. Uh, Departments are reporting 15 to 20 CPR cases a day. And we know it's going to take a toll on the responders. So we brought together today a really great panel of uh, fire service professionals to kind of guide us to what firefighters and fire chiefs need to expect in the next couple of weeks, next couple of months, you know, into the next year or so when it comes to firefighter mental health and uh, wellness. So I'd like to, ju- um, to thank Jeff Dill from the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance, uh, Ryan Gallick, who is with the Mental Hygiene Project, uh, Chief Jeremy Holmes from Covington, Georgia, as well as Captain Jeremy, Jeremy Mathis from Covington, Georgia. Um, if we could just have each of you introduce yourself real quick, uh, we'll start with Jeff. Thanks, Peter. I'm honored to be here uh, on this podcast. Uh, like you mentioned, this is a very serious issue that we're dealing with right now, but uh, it'll be something that we will need to deal with in the future for quite some time based on the behaviors and emotional aspects. So I'm a retired fire captain from outside of Chicago, a licensed counselor and founder of FBHA. And we've been uh, tracking firefighter and EMS suicides for the last 10 years, but uh, we also do a lot in the behavioral health realm with post-traumatic stress and depression, and anxiety. And we'll be talking a little bit about that uh, within this podcast. Hey, Jeff, thank you. And Ryan, how about you? Yeah, thank you uh, for having me on as well. Uh, Ryan Gallick, I'm based in Orlando, Florida. I was a firefighter paramedic for nearly two decades. Retired out June 29th of 2018 to start a consulting company. Before that, uh, as I just mentioned, I was a firefighter in Central Florida. I'm also the co-founder of the uh, Firefighter uh, Safety and Health Collaborative, which was established in 2016 and spanning across many uh, states. And so my passion for occupational safety, health, and wellness and first responders, but also, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm co-founder of the Mental Hygiene Project. Mental health is very uh, much a passion of mine. Uh, so, again, thank you for having me, and I'm excited to uh, have this very important conversation. Brian, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Chief Jeremy Holmes from Covington, Georgia. Well, uh, Mr. Matthews, thank you for having us um, on here as well. So I'm Jeremy Holmes, Fire Chief for Covington Fire Department. 
Covington is in Georgia, which is also in Metro uh, Atlanta area. And uh, so that's uh, where we're at. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Chief. And then Captain Jeremy Mathis, also from Covington. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today. I'm very grateful to be able to share a little bit of what went on with us. Uh, I've been with Covington for right at 16 years and been in the fire service for about 18, started off as a volunteer at a neighboring department. So I'm just very grateful for this opportunity. So thank you again. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us. And, and before we get into it, I just want to share the latest stats. Uh, this is uh, as of um, April 13th from the IAFC, the International Association of Fire Chiefs. They're tracking at this point, uh, 5,000 firefighters have been exposed to COVID-19, uh, 3,000 have been quarantined, and 300 have been diagnosed. Um, in talking with folks in, in different areas, there's a lot of testing that has not been made available yet, so we know those numbers are only going to grow. Um, but we have um, Chief Holmes and, and Captain Mathis from Covington to tell us about their story. Um, Captain Mathis was actually quarantined. so. Captain Mathis, if you can kind of talk us and talk through us, talk with us about the uh, the last couple of weeks and what you've been going through, and then you know, Chief, uh, if you can kind of tell us about as a fire chief what you had to go through to make sure that the rest of the firefighters were were safe, as well as taking care of firefighters' families, et cetera. Certainly, um, the the thing that started out with us is we just ran a normal run-of-the-mill call it was for a patient lift assist uh, where we received not necessarily bad information but a lack of information and we got on scene and it progressed from there questions were asked and and things ended up not adding up to what a standard lift assist call uh, would normally uh, look like um, some things happened i'll let chief holmes get into a little bit about the department of public health and how things were reported to us uh, but as far as the quarantine went itself, uh, they were very gracious and offered uh, the crew that I was assigned with that day to stay within the station so that we didn't take it to our families. Um, I have one of the guys who has young children. I have another one who has a pregnant wife at home. And then the, the other two of us have kids that are a little bit older, um, middle school, high school age. So we weren't as concerned as the younger kids or the one with the pregnant wife, but yet we wanted to make sure we too weren't carrying it home to our family so chief holmes was very gracious and allowed us to stay here and provided us exceptional support as far as uh, resources food uh, all kinds of things that you could imagine that would be needed for a two-week stay uh, when you are unable to leave so tell us about the quarantine and what exactly was going on with you i mean where were you quarantined and then uh what what were you going through as you were kind of oh, you were isolated from everybody tell us about that experience so immediately when we were uh given the information that the patient that we ran was te did test positive um chief holmes stepped up and gave us the station that we are assigned uh and he from there uh, redirected crews that would be coming in the next day and the day following uh, to a, a different station so that they could respond from there. Um, so we were pretty much within the four walls of our station during the, the remainder of the 14 days that the quarantine was set out. Okay. Okay. And during that time, what's going through your mind with the possibility of, of having contracted COVID 
um, you know, being stuck away from your family. What, what, um, what was going on at that point for you? So there were obviously there was a whole different range of emotions. Um, initially, with the lack of information that we received, there was some anger that, that came out with that. Uh, felt as though there was maybe some dishonesty that was uh, portrayed to begin with from the patient and the patient's family. Um, and then, of course, the, the a little bit of fear of the unknown as to what was going on uh, with the disease and how. Uh, it can affect you as a person. Uh, we had to take our vital signs twice a day and report that uh, to Chief Holmes and the command staff, as well as the Department of Public Health here in Georgia. And so every day, it's a, it's twice a day a reminder of what's going on, and you're wondering as you approach that time, you know, this am I going to have a temperature this time? Am I going to have a fever? What's going to, you know, go on? when we're taking our vital signs and we have to report this information. So there was a lot of unknown and a lot of stress, obviously, that comes with not knowing how to handle the situation, being that it is such a new and novel disease that's go, that's out there. Okay. So, Chief Holmes, uh, as a chief now, you, you get the news that uh, there is a patient uh, that your members have come in contact with. So what did that start for you and your leadership staff, uh, as well as the city, to make sure that everything is being handled properly? And again, this is this is really as things are starting to unfold. So you're, I guess, where was the information that you were gathering? Where was that coming from? Yes, sir. So um, I've been the fire chief there since 2018, but I've been in the department for 20 years. It's the only job I've ever had is working in Covington. And so it was um, – you know, I know each of these guys personally, and so uh, I know their families, I know their kids, and uh, we welcome all of that to the fire station um, all the time. And so that was, uh, you know, it's it's very personal. So when um, something that Jim uh, Cap Mathis did not tell you is that we, when we found out that the patient had the symptoms there at the call, we immediately quarantined the firefighters. Well, we didn't find that out until shift change, so we immediately quarantined the next shift that showed up at that fire station as well. And so we quarantined all, um, all of those guys at one time. And the Department of Health, we, we relayed all of that information to the Department of Health. But at this time, this is when information was, in, in, which is still fluid, but at the time was very fluid. And it was changing almost minute, if not hourly, of what we were supposed to do and what were the protocols. So we just went directly with what the Department of Health told us to do. And um, but the, they told us that, uh, that the patient probably did not have the virus, and so we did not need to quarantine anyone. So we still kept them for 24 hours just to monitor the situation, and we released everybody um, the next the next morning. And two days later, when Cat Mathis went back on shift about 10 o'clock that night is when I got a call from the Department of Health saying that that patient did in fact test positive. Oh and wow! So uh, we yeah so flood of emotions there because we didn't know exactly who all we had exposed. We didn't know we were trying to act on information that they had given us, but we needed to make some immediate decisions. One thing I wanted to do was I wanted to tell the firefighters myself and not have the Department of Public Health tell them. So drove up to the fire station and we relayed the information, just said, look, we, the patient did test positive. Well, Something else is that someone from the hospital had already relayed information 
to our firefighters saying that the patient did not test positive. So there was a, a lot of miscommunication, a lot of misinformation going on besides just the patient not relaying the accurate information. Then we had someone from the hospital who just may have been misinformed, not exactly sure how that transpired out. So we're like, no, the Department of Public Health, this is the doctor on the phone, and she's saying that this patient is, is positive. And so they were given, the, the firefighters were given a choice to self-isolate uh, so they could go home or we can set up a, a different place. At that time, I was not prepared. Um, and so we just decided to go ahead and lock down the station because I knew we were going to have to have it cleaned and everything anyways. And so we just quarantined them there, and the Department of Public Health told us that we did not need to worry about the people that were the oncoming shift, but just the four firefighters that we had responding on the call. So okay. um, there was okay. some misinformation there as well, uh, because at that time, protocol was not to wear a mask, only wear a mask if the uh, person met some of the signs and symptoms. Well, in the information that was relayed, the patient did not meet those things. So because they did not have proper um, PPE, that's why our firefighters were quarantined. There were uh, some other organizations on scene there that actually did not relay the accurate information to the Department of Public Health. So they did not have to be quarantined. And so that gave me a lot of questions from, from the public. Well, why are the firefighters having to be quarantined and EMS personnel not have to be. And all I can tell you is they didn't relay the accurate information. So uh, there's just a lot of confusion, a lot of fear. And then that also led to fear among the entire department. And so uh, one thing I think we did right was just tell everyone in the department and in the city exactly what was going on. It's exactly when we got the information and relayed that information to everyone. So uh, it's it's open and transparent as possible. So that that's letting the, the the public know that you've got four firefighters that have been isolated due to a contact with a patient with the COVID, um, and that you're you know off, you're telling them to quarantine in their places. Um, what about to the families, to the, to the firefighters' families, uh, or you know any of the other providers they might have dealt with throughout the course of the day? Uh, yes, sir. So as far as the families went, we, you know, gave the firefighters the chance there to tell their families to them. We set up things in the department of, you know, what are any needs? People were asking, hey, can we go cut their grass during these 14 days? Do we need to bring any food, anything like that? I will say we had um, some some different agencies and corporations and things in our area, and they provided all meals for the firefighters during this time frame. Um, they were always wanting to have supplies. We had too many supplies for them as people wanted to show up to help out during this time. Mm -hmm. so that, that shows you, you know, the community aspect of it. Uh, and that they were providing for their families as well. Uh, since then, I will say I would not quarantine them to the fire station again. Um, and I've set up an alternate spot, which, uh, through, which is through the Boy Scout camp. And they have a, an isolated camp there. And we would, that's our plan now is if we have to do this again, we would. And the reason I wouldn't do that is because we are eliminating fire coverage, a fire station in that area and having to respond from the next closest station. And okay. that's just not necessarily the best plan. But, I, you know, I was having to make a split second decision. And so uh, to do over again, I would do that differently. 
Well, it makes sense. I mean, if, if everything there has already been in contact, right, you don't have to move them any place. They're there, and that's the end of it. So it um, seems like an easy decision at that point in time. To, yes, sir. And uh, to be able to since handle then, we've had – yes, sir. Um, since then, we've had another situation where we had a fire alarm, and upon arrival, it was um, it was confirmed structure fire, and we had to make a rescue out of the back of the house, and the the patient had a sign on the door that, that said that they were positive for COVID-19, and were in were in isolation, and we uh, we had a whole crew have to go in, you know, fight fire, be aggressive on that end, have to make the rescue on the other end, and uh, patients transported to the hospital, and then we you know, and we also know that this patient is has this situation uh turned out you know and that caused a big you know the guys are going to do what they have to do the, the firefighters are going to do what they need to do but after it's over with then they go all right well what's the next step chief because of this and luckily for us it was a person that just didn't want any contact with anyone so it was not true but i had to go through the whole process of trying to verify all of this information and get accurate information and so um so it's it's a constant challenge. Yeah, that wow, that's uh that's the best no soliciting sign that I've heard in a while. It is. <laughs> <A door. laughs> it would definitely work. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, it sounded like it. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad in that case that uh, that was just false advertising, um, and and the firefighters were able to do what they had to do. So okay. All right. Well, guys, thank you. And I, I want to, you know, jump in and, and again, please jump in if anything pops up here. So uh, Jeff and Ryan, uh, in, in talking uh, about that situation right now, you, you've got the firefighters now, they're isolated in the station. There's a group of them, you know, that probably makes it a much more positive environment waiting out the news of of testing and everything else. But You've got responders who are who are accustomed to dealing with tragedies um, on a on a frequent basis in some places, right? But you know, in in some of the folks I've heard and I've talked to, they've talked about having to do pronouncements, uh, let the family know um, that they need to call the funeral home because they've got to go on to their next call because the call volumes are so high with COVID going on up in the Northeast. Um, so they're they're not only having to work the patient. Uh, at that point, then uh, consoling the family and then telling them what they need to do to have the the deceased person removed from their from their home, um, but also, you know, firefighters are getting diagnosed. The you know one person on the engine in the firehouse is being diagnosed, and then there's five six other folks in that station who are wondering what's going on and potentially bringing things home. So, Jeff, we'll start with you. Is is while all this is going on, you know, it's on the news, your family's asking you what's going on, you're dealing with it as a first responder on a daily basis. Um, what are some of the things that, that we need to know from um, the mental health and wellness side or mental well-being uh, for responders who are dealing with this right now and will continue to deal with this for the un unknown amount of time into the future? Well, you know, these are extraordinary times. You know, our, our jobs are already difficult as first responders uh, from the things that we see and do and, and the belief uh, of what I call cultural brainwashing, meaning that, uh, you know, every time we put this uniform on, we're expected to act in certain manners, you know, and, and people think that, oh, brave, strong, self-sacrificing, uh, self-sacrificing, courageous, and, and these are all true, but, you know, these expectations that we are held to and accountable 
um, by our brothers and sisters we work with, the community that expects that from us, and in fact, the traditions of the fire service determine this. And yet when we're challenged both in our personal and professional lives to keep those expectations at that height become virtually impossible. And that's why we see and what we do with behavioral health and suicide uh, uh, data collecting, it is very difficult to deal with these on a daily basis. And we don't know what the future will hold for us. I think uh, Captain Mathis said it really uh, appropriate there, that, that fear of the unknown, because this hit us. Uh, Chief Holmes had no idea, because we've never done training on these things, we, and, and you just can't, because there are things that come upon us, and we have to just base everything on our experiences. But when we start looking at the, the behavioral health, the mental health of our, our members, uh, many years ago, we did a survey of over, I personally asked over 500 fire and EMS who were struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideations. I asked them for their top five warning signs. And the top five were recklessness and impulsiveness, anger, isolation, lack of confidence and skills, and sleep deprivation. And now when I take and I look at that in this situation that we're going through right now, well, we already have the anger. You, you heard Captain Mathis say it, and I've heard it from so many of our brothers and sisters recently. Isolation. Isolation usually meant uh, that they became isolated. They didn't want to talk about their issues. Well, now we have this isolation within our own selves uh, and because of the things that we're dealing with. And what about lack of confidence in our skills? Why can't we save these people? You know, that, that's our job is, is to rescue and save people. And then what happens there is compassion fatigue comes in. It plays a, a real big, and what that is is emotional or physical exhaustion. And it leads to poor ability to feel compassion for people. And, and so these things come into play. And then you start looking at uh, sleep deprivation. We're, we're, going, we're absolutely seeing that right now. And then depression. And then maybe even negative outlooks of what, uh, you know, what has happened here? What situation am I in? That negative outlook, how about fear? Fear meaning, what have I taken home to my family? Will they see symptoms in a couple of weeks? What about our children? And, and another one is, is OCD. Because for all those that have been quarantined, and they're going through these daily rituals of you know, checking our temperature, our vital signs. Does it not become then something that they do once they've been cleared of those 14 days thinking, well, maybe it'll be 15 days, maybe it's 17 for me. And, and they get that OCD tendencies that start to come into uh, a play within their souls. And, and then, like I said, when you start looking at these issues, depression and, and anger, we know that when we collected data in the, for firefighter and EMS suicides, everyone thinks it's post-traumatic stress is the number one reason, when in reality, it's marital and family relationship issues, followed by depression, medical or physical issues, then addictions, and then PTSD. So all these things are, are going to start coming into play when you look at the numerous amounts. And it doesn't have to be the big cities like New York. What about the small volunteer departments that are running a few COVID patient calls and, and they know these people? They work with them. They're friends with them. So it, 
it's going to show no discrimination, just like suicide does in our data. There's no discrimination. It doesn't matter if you're career, volunteer, doesn't matter if you're fire, EMS, or police. We don't collect police. That's bluehelp.org. But all these things to show no discrimination, whether it's rural or city, suburban, male, females. And so all organizations need to start really being prepared. What, hey, what are our resources? How are we going to take care of our people? Do we have SISM teams, peer support teams? Who's taking care of those people? You know, we consult with a lot of fire departments across the U.S. And we tell them, if you have a peer support SISM team, if you want to be on that team twice a year, you will go see a counselor because you start absorbing all these issues. And, and so this COVID-19, it hits so fast. And the, the jobs that our first responders are doing, I bet you a high percentage of them haven't really sat down and thought, wow, what has hit us? And that's why I say in the future, we really need to be proactive in this aspect. So it's the long-term effects. It, it's once the, the adrenaline rushes down and, and people kind of start settling back into, uh, and, and I, you know, they keep talking about the new normal and I think that's always a buzz term that's being used. But in conversations, it sounds like, you know, the way that, that fire and EMS calls are responded to in the future is certainly going to change. And, you know, the social isolation, social isolation has certainly changed the way people interact. Um, you know, there's been stories about, uh, um, you know, divorce rates going up and, and you know, domestic calls are, are not being reported as much as they have been because, if it's a child, for instance, they're not going to school where they're seeing these factors. So there's a lot that's changing um, that we're not seeing at this point. Um, so, and, and that's a great point. Uh, uh, this morning I spoke with a fire chief of a major city near uh, New York City, and uh, he, he said that what you don't hear are the suicides within the uh, community or, like you had mentioned, the uh, abuse. The physical abuse that uh, has increased drastically from people being socially uh, isolated. Yeah, and it's really it's, it's you take away the social aspect of it for some people, and and you know these these are folks that police and fire agencies would normally be or EMS agencies would be responding to, unfortunately, on a you know regular basis. Some of those calls have even gone down just because folks are are potentially able to hide those situations. So there's going to be a lot that comes out. Uh, I think, you know, down the road, um, as you start to, to get back to normal and you start, you know, you're able to go back outside and start interacting with folks face to face, or at least, you know, on a more consistent basis. So, so Jeff, you talked about, the, okay. Well, I was just going to reiterate one point. I had a firefighter call me who's been deployed uh, to New York and he stated that he had to call the death. And he's it's just a small, you know, small department. Uh, he's never done that before. And he had to call the death on, on a patient and it was eating him alive. He thought, well, maybe if I just did CPR a little longer, this and that. And, and so we are going to see those after effects for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Peter, I, I have something for Jeff. Do you mind if I, if I jump in there really quick? Absolutely. Please do. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Jeff said something, everything that, just said is, is extremely powerful, but he said something really critical. And he said, these are extraordinary times and that they are, they're extraordinary times. And, you know, as a former firefighter paramedic and, and 
really developing a, a statewide uh, safety initiative that's throughout multiple states, I feel that I have a fairly strong grasp on the risk management process and and really being proactive and, and looking at some of these things. And so I feel like the greatest risk right now is actually that of labor management. Now, I'm not speaking for all fire departments, organizations, municipalities, but that can be a very high risk situation. What is the relationship between labor and management? I think that is something we really have to look at. So going back to what Jeff said about these being extraordinary times and him saying that first responders have this expectation of being uh, brave, strong, and courageous. Well, city, uh, county, uh, township administrators look at first responders also as brave, strong, courageous, and all of those other adjectives that define those first responders. And so they want to know, as a consultant, when I go in and work with these people, they're, they're, they're acting so bizarre. They're, they're, they're not really understanding this. Just put your N95 mask on like you always do. And I think that they don't have a strong level of understanding that these first responders are nervous about this. And, and I don't want to use the term paranoia, Jeff. Correct me if I'm wrong, but from talking to first responders and, and, and chief administrators, it's in my opinion that there are first responders in fear over this. And so I think if we want to look at it from a mental health perspective and, and a sustainability plan, we've got to be able to communicate because it's not just the first responders going on these traumatic calls or the traumatic experiences. It's labor management relationships right now. And, and before you answer, Jeff or Peter or whomever, um, uh, Mark Cuban said a very powerful quote, and I want to share this. And while he's an entrepreneur and, and investor, um, he said this, how companies treat workers during pandemic could define their brand for decades. So if we look at the way that we treat workers, those labor management relationships, are we going to define the brand or, or a view, a perception that is really going to have long lasting effects? What, what do you guys think about that? Well, you know, going to your point, and you're absolutely right, Ryan, you know, you're the expert in this aspect, you know, talking and working with uh, advising management and risk management. But what your key word there was, um, was is the communication, to communicate, you know, between, um, you know, the mayors or townships or district boards. But it's not only communicate, it's also educate. And that's key, because when I contact fire chiefs, uh, to validate uh, firefighter suicide, they uh, unbelievable response when they say, "Well, we just didn't know that those were signs and symptoms of our members." And, and you can't blame the chiefs because there has been no educational period to train those chiefs. It, you know, in 2010 when I started, no one was talking about PTSD and, and suicide. And so I'm a firm believer in education is the key to everything in life. And so I, I tell the chiefs, say, don't blame yourself because you've never been educated. And, and that's why I think this is our opportunity for fire departments to work with their, um, you know, their mayor's office or their human resources or whoever governs them and to understand to educate them. And this is what our job is. This is what our people are feeling. 
And so that to me, Ryan, is your biggest challenge. That to me, uh, and I don't know how your relationship is, Chief Holmes, uh, but your biggest you know, challenges as, as fire chiefs are to educate the public and educate whoever governs you know, your fire department, the city. And those are things that we need to really look at in the future. Yes, sir. This is Chief Holmes. Can I jump in real fast? Please do. So the um, what I did not tell the quarantine firefighters was I immediately contacted and we outsource our employment law questions because at this time mm -hmm. this was uh, this was prior to no one knew what was going to happen and the uh, the outsource was an immediate response to that to the question was how are we going to pay these guys was well we're this not workers compensation and it was a it was a complete denial. And uh, my first thought was one: I know you you don't you're not you don't actually work for the city, or else you would have a different opinion. But that was my my first thought. And then uh, I've also um, I just recently graduated from law school, and so I also did not agree with the opinion of it either. Um, and so I just I just left it alone on that end. I didn't relay that information and um, assigned our quarantine guys just asked them if there are some SOGs uh, rewriting and revisions that they wanted to work on. And they actually just started staying busy on their, on their days uh, while they're there at the fire station. So they were doing the normal truck days on, on truck day. They were doing station days on station days and, um, and working on different pauses and stuff. And one, it just kept their minds active and working instead of just sitting around. And then, um, and then I just used that to justify paying them for their time, even their time mm -hmm. that they weren't on shift. And uh, right or wrong, that's just uh, the decisions that uh, we came up with to try to work on that. But since then, that bought me time to be able to talk to the mayor, who's great for us. And our city manager, city manager is on board. He was he was 100% behind whatever we wanted to do on all of that. And so, but it gave us time to educate and to look up and do some more homework on all of it. So Ryan, what what do you think about uh, advising risk management uh, and educating them on what their people do? Well, I think it's very important. Uh, you know, when I work with clients, one of the things that I do is build a partnership and build design teams and cause teams. Um, you know, right now that this would definitely be something reactive to do, but it's still something that I would advise for people to do. I think it's really important that we build teams and, and those teams are part of collaboration that brings communication, coordination, consistency, and just really creates a partnership that has mutual benefit for the employees and the employer. Um, so I think that it's so important that there's that communication, that transparency, and especially in times like now, the, the empathy. Hey, you know, um, I, before I forget, I wanted to ask Captain Mathis a question, and that was, Cap, uh, once you got out of quarantine, how did your family accept you? I mean, was there a little apprehension? How about your neighbors uh, and people that you saw? Was there apprehension that maybe you still could infect them? Uh, I don't, my family, not at all. They were very excited to see me. I believe that uh, the same is true with, with the other guys after speaking with them when we came back to work. Uh, one of the things that Chief Holmes did for us is he gave us a couple of shifts off uh, so that we could spend time with our families and, and sort of catch up on a little bit of time. Obviously, we'll never get the time back, but we had a little bit more to to be there with them. Um, it's, there may be 
some of the neighbors and things, there were questions, uh, obviously, in a small community, word gets out uh, of who it is. And so there were some uh, questions about that. One of the guys has uh, high school age uh, boys that work locally, and they were actually wouldn't allow them to show up to work on a couple of shifts uh, that they were scheduled because of the concern that they may be contaminated. But uh, that was resolved pretty quickly. Um, and things went back to normal for their families as well. So uh, as far as the general public, they did a pretty good job of trying to keep it out of there other than people just knowing who it is based on us not being at home and, and knowing where we work and things of that nature. People obviously were able to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So Jeff, I just want to go back uh, as far as, you know, you talked about the CISM teams. And so if you're a department that doesn't have access to that, you know, whether it's your department yourself or, a, a, you know, maybe a countywide regional response team, where should departments go for information? And, and who in the department should be responsible for that if it's something they have not had before they don't normally have access to those resources? Is it the chief that should be doing that? Is it a, a, an assistant chief or, you know, a, an officer to kind of help spearhead getting that uh, program developed for your department? What's what's the best course of action there? You know, that, that's a great question, and uh, and we did not uh, rehearse that. <laughs> so, great question. Uh, because I consult with fire departments, I, I get that question a lot. Uh, who, who should oversee this? Who should, uh, you know, uh, find our resources? And that's key. I think every department really is going to lean on resources in the near future, meaning who are our competent, meaning cultural competent counselors and chaplains that we can send our people to. And for that reason, the National Volunteer Fire Council has asked FBHA to put together a national registry. Now, in departments, you can have firefighters as a committee that can go out and validate and find those resources of counselors. Uh, maybe many have employee system programs and good good people. Like I said, I'm a licensed counselor. I, I have some great friends that are counselors, but I never would have sent any of my firefighters to them because they don't understand our world. And so it goes back to that educational process again. Do we want to bring in our employee assistant counselors to train them to understand what our world's about and our thoughts and our fears? Can we also do that in regard to counselors within the community? Many across your state will be able to do telehealth, meaning that you can sit in your house and have counseling sessions via computer. So all these finding these resources can, you know, the chief's docket's usually pretty busy, and so is the assistant chief. So maybe you have a, an officer, a battalion chief, or a captain who might want to run the safety and health program. Maybe they then get together and have a committee that goes out and validates counselors and chaplains for a list of resources for not only the, the fire service and EMS service, but for their family members. I have 12 questions. I get seven to 10 calls a week from fire and EMS saying, hey, do you have someone in my area? So I have 12 questions that I validate counselors with when I call, and I do that for free. And if anyone wants those questions, uh, they can email me at uh, jdill at ffbha.org, 
and I will send you those questions to validate. And, uh, and if you have any uh, counselors that your department uses and you really like, once again, send me an email so that I can get them on the National Registry. Resources will be vital for our members. And uh, so departments, both fire and EMS, need to start preparing for those right away. Jeff, thank you. And then, you know, another, another thing to just ask too is just, the, you know, the, the burnout rate, you know, in the EMS side, the burnout rate's a lot higher than it is on the fire side. Uh, but departments that have the fire-based EMS uh, programs, so perhaps your first five years on the department, you're on, you know, fully assigned to an ambulance, that's your only responsibility. Mm -hmm. Do you have any suggestions, and really this is for everybody on, um, any suggestions for folks who are primarily dealing with EMS runs when there are other companies or other assignments that could potentially get folks away uh, for um, maybe a day that's not as busy and not, you know, not dealing with uh, the sick and the infirmed? Any suggestions for giving some of those folks a little break to uh, to calm down, um, you know, from now until uh, the, the country um, sees a huge decrease in the number of patients and, and fatalities? Well, just speaking from our department, uh, we did rotating shifts. So maybe we, but we were paramedic firefighters. And some organizations just have strictly EMS organizations within their department. So you can't rotate them with the, within the fire service. So you really have to look at, see, hey, what are our options that we have? If you have fire medics and you run your own, like we did, run your own uh, medics, you can rotate your people on shift. I think they would absolutely appreciate that. Um, but uh, maybe the chief has uh, some other ideas or maybe uh, Captain or Ryan, what they did in their departments. This is Captain Matthews. Uh, chief Holmes. Um, okay. Sorry. Uh, I go, okay. I go ahead. What, our, what our shift is doing currently is uh, we have a rescue company. We don't uh, transport, so we do first response. So we have a rescue company that's basically running out of uh, each station and what we're doing is rotating out personnel um, on each shift basis or if the shift is extremely busy we're able to do that in the middle of the shift as well so we're, we're looking out for those signs of burnout for the personnel um, and then you know making adjustments accordingly and now that's for our shift so the other two shifts uh, I'm not sure what they're currently doing but that's what's come down from from my battalion chief currently and and that's uh, across the board. That's on all three shifts there. Okay, thank you guys. Uh, Brian, from your end, any any perspective there about uh, ways to try and help with the burnout at this point, where departments are are running nonstop? So I'm actually going to go on a whole different side of this, and I do have to be uh, careful with contractual agreements. But I have uh, Jeff Dill is familiar with one of my clients. It's a very large theme park that people love to uh, visit every single year. And so with people not visiting theme parks, um, there's not necessarily calls. And so, um, you know, for right now, our, our, you know, for one of my clients, that, that call load has dropped significantly. Um, I wish I could go into more detail, but I do have uh, agreements where I can't share specifics. But we, we have firefighters and first responders that have dramatically um, I mean, they go days on end without a call, whereas normally there's a lot of calls. And so this is an opportunity to share uh, tips, tools, and techniques on how to be resilient and go on target solutions and 
uh, get caught up on training. And so, I, you know, for me, with my one client in particular, it's a whole different spectrum. And some of these firefighters are now kind of wishing they were running those calls. You know, I remember being on the box for so many years and, and oh, my God, I just want to break. But then now I'm starting to think and reflect um, on, on some of these firefighters. So as far as a, a perception on those that are still running calls, I think it's good to, to you know, certainly rotate. Um, but then, you know, you also don't necessarily want to start mix-matching crews. You know, it really depends on your organizational size, your system. Uh, to and, and maintaining operational readiness. So I don't know how much help that was, but that was a little bit of, of a point of view. I think one and, thing, uh, this is this is Jeff again, I think one thing that we, or two things actually, is I wrap up my little segment, uh, self-care. Self-care is imperative in today's society. And for us in the fire service, even if we get 10, 15 minutes, if we can just maybe meditate, read, uh, pray, listen to music, yoga, well, whatever it is, you know, for me, I like to walk. I like to get out and walk and listen to country music. That's just my, to get away from all the stress and the death that I deal with on a daily basis. And so if we can start learning to practice self-care and incorporate that within our family, get them to, uh, families being both uh, our personal and our professional, get them uh, together and, and do these things. And one key thing that I, I really stress in our workshops is called doing an internal size up. And what that means is we need to ask ourselves on a daily basis, why am I acting this way? Why am I feeling this way? You know, why am I angry? Why am I not sleeping? Why am I feeling negative? These are things that we need to understand within ourselves, our emotions. And the best thing that you can do with that internal size up is listen to others because they see us a lot better than we will ever see ourselves. And, and so those are two key uh, factors that I believe we need to really institute within our organizations, internal size up, and then really stress the self-care on a daily basis. Uh, this That's is great, uh, Jeff. Thank Jeremy. you. Uh, this uh, Chief Holmes here. But I'll, talking about burnout, I, I've been trying to pay real close attention to uh, to the shift personnel. And I've actually noticed it, it's not the burnout of, of the of the guy that's been there the longest. It's the new people is the one that's really had the hardest time, especially with the, with the uh, self isolation and all of that. Um, you know, they were really questioning: Is this really what I signed up for? I thought I was signing mm -hmm. up to fight fires, and um, right. And so that's that's been um, that's been more of a response I've seen. Yeah, it's, and it's quite a challenge for you, Chief. So, Chief, how do you how do you uh, answer that then? When when you know this is this is you know a period of time, but the reality is, you know, it could happen again. So, w what is your response to members like that to make sure that they understand that, you know, that the jobs you know different every day, um, but to encourage them to stick with it. So, actually, uh, I just listen. Uh, it seems to go a lot further than trying to, to talk to them and explain to them. Um, I just listen to their their needs, their concerns, what they're worried about, their fears, and and those things because uh, they'll tell you if you want to listen to it uh, is what I found out. And um, right. And so <laughs> so um, it's but they seem to feel better after they just talk about it. And so I don't okay. really guide them. You know, I just tell them, you know, this this is a hard job, and you never know what you're going to get. 
And, uh, but it's a, it's a job that's worth it. And so uh, we, I just ask them what got them here in the first place. Why did they apply in the, the, in the first place? I get some talking and then we talk about some difficult calls that both of us had ran and some of the unknowns and different things like that. And uh, then we talk about their families and they thing you know, they're, they'll, they'll, they may cry for a little while and then they may start laughing. So that's just uh, been part of it. The highs and lows. That's great. Okay. Well, thank you for bringing that up. And that's, I think, you know, that, that, that is a very good point. Um, you know, Jeff, you mentioned that. Um, and to Ryan, as far as the call volume, I mean, that's something I'm hearing all the time as uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine from FDNY this morning. Uh, and he, he mentioned that surprisingly their, their fire volume is up while everything else is down. Um, and they're in an area, there's a lot of companies around them. So they don't do as many EMS runs as some of the other companies do. So their fire runs are up. So as a company, their, you know, their spirits are up, but they also know what's going on, you know, but 15 blocks away or another station, uh, their members are getting beat up every single day um, with, with, with having to go to these calls and, and deal with everything that's being uh, put in front of them. So um, yeah, other calls and even just the other EMS calls, the, the frequent flyers, it seems to be that they're down. The number on those calls are down because folks don't want to go to the hospital. They're afraid to go to the hospital. Right. Um, and, and, you know, with that is, is how do you ensure that, I mean, is that, I'm not even sure about that. And, and this might be more for another topic or another discussion, but if you've got those frequent flyers that you're not going to, who do need, you know, to go to the hospital from time to time or a doctor, uh, any suggestions on how to, you know, be empathetic and reach out to them so that you make sure that they are taking care of themselves, even if they fear going to the hospital for the sake of catching COVID. Um, and Chief and, and Cat Mathis, that might be something for you guys. Um, but just any suggestions to that? Because that was a topic that came up in a conversation the other day. So, so one of my clients right now, uh, which is actually my former employer um, out, out in Osceola County, and they're creating a community assistant task force. And I'm just now getting to learn a little bit more about this task force. Uh, just got the contract. So really looking forward to being able to figure out what is their objectives, what are their goals. Um, and so I think that just immediately, that's the first thing that comes to my mind, is what kind of task force can you create um, to ensure that, that there's community involvement? And one of those things is not just checking on the frequent flyers, but is there an opportunity for this to be a moment for us to really rally around community mental hygiene and, and having, you know, cities, counties, townships, whoever it is that you work for, create programs or share programs, ideas and tips on how to be resilient. And, and so, you know, that's just, that's my immediate need. But as far as frequent flyers, um, you know, I don't know if you want to send the, the crews out there and, and do that engagement, certainly good, uh, good engagement, but, uh, what, what do you guys think? What do you think, Cap? What do you think, Chief? Uh, Mattis, you yeah, I, I think that, uh, we always need to make sure that the, the public obviously knows that we're here for them and, um, I'm not certain how you would go about doing that, especially if you do have those crews that are seeing a little bit more of a call volume than others uh, reaching out to them. Um, one of the things that we've done as a department in chief, if I'm stepping on your toes, I apologize, is we've limited our interaction with the public as much as possible other than emergency responses and things like that. So 
it, it's kind of would go against some of the things that we have in place to try to protect our people. But yet we do need to have a positive showing within the community to show that, hey, we are still here for you if you need us. Don't hesitate to call. So I'm not really certain on how to go about doing that, but I think you bring up a very valid point that we do need to make sure that they know that we are still here. Chief, anything from you? Uh, yes, sir. So, you know, it's been difficult um, having to make some of the decisions, such as we're not going to do our blood pressure checks where people just come in and we just, and we do that. We're not doing our station tours. We're not doing our, our, um, you know, we've, so what we've tried to do is create it onto a social media platform and then on our city uh, website and being able to get out and do uh, virtual station tours. And we have a uh, contest going on for the community of doing a virtual uh, uh, fire escape plan in their home and everything where we're going to deliver pizza to their house for the winter of those things. So we're trying to be creative on that end. Um, as far as like the frequent flyers and stuff, you know, that's that's a great point, but something just hasn't really been on the radar. So it needs to be something that we really, uh, really think about and put our minds together on. You know, it's just, it's difficult because, uh, you know, we had to cut back on some of our calls, our call yeah. response plans. So, um, and we just went back to our core mission, which was life, uh, medical calls involved, um, life-threatening situations. So, you know, we're not going to the sick person call anymore and standing by for an ambulance and those types of things um, just to limit some of the exposure. And there's two sides of that. So I have some half of the department going, thank you. I don't want to be exposed. Man, we need to limit that. The other half going, that's our, our job is to go on these calls. That's our community. And um, and so it's, it's a balancing act of, of trying to know what's the best thing to do on these things. And, you know, it's just unprecedented situation, things we hadn't had to deal with in the past. Great. Thank you, Chief. Okay. So, Jeff and Ryan, I guess you, from, a, from a Chief Officer down, I mean, what, what should folks be looking for in, in their members just to make sure, you know, what, what questions can you be asking them? So, Jeff, you've got the questions that validate the counselors, right? But what questions can you or what signs should you be looking for in your colleagues that uh, maybe something is not right? Again, whether it's, you know, the, the COVID situation or what's going on at home, you know, the stress on them to not go to work, to not potentially bring something home. As we kind of wrap up, what are some what are some things that firefighters should be looking at with the looking out for with their brothers and sisters? Well, I, I believe just a, a change of personality will be key. Well, I mean, we live with these brothers and sisters 24 hours or 48 hours. Uh, we train with them as volunteers. Uh, we look for some change in their, their demeanor and we look at how quick are they to get angry? Are they isolating themselves from the, you know, from the fire service? Meaning are we spending more time in our bunk rooms than we usually did on the bay floor? And that ability just to uh, express like the chief said it so uh, so fantastically, is that, hey, I'm here to listen. And, and that's key. And, and if we can open up and if we can have senior leadership, meaning not only the chiefs, but senior firefighters talk, and that's where we've seen the greatest benefit over these past years. And we've seen 
those that have struggled with issues stand up and talk about it and say, hey, if I'm struggling, chances are you might as well. So those, just just that change in personality, uh, like I said, the, the top five issues of isolation, they start talking about, uh, you know, their skills are no good, they're not saving people, uh, sleep deprivation, and I'm just not sleeping, anxiety and stress, or what about addictions? What addictions do we see? Do we see increase in alcohol? Do we see increase in gambling? Um, these are all little telltale signs that we need to watch out for. And they're there, you, you can see them. It's just that we have to be aware to look for them. We have to be aware to listen to others when they say, hey, things, you just seem like you're off your game a little bit. Do you, would you like to talk? And so those are just some of the small aspects. So, and uh, I will send you a link of our top five warning signs and what to do uh, in regard to those aspects of, uh, you know, trying to help out our brother and sister. So I'll send you that link, Peter. Jeff, thank you so much. And we'll include that on the firehouse.com podcast page as well. So, um, okay. So Ryan, anything else to add in on top of uh, what Jeff has uh, shared? With no, us? I think, you, yeah. So, so, you know, I'm not a licensed mental health professional uh, as Jeff is, but I think that we need to understand that we may not look at people right now and see a lot of happiness and that's okay. We're allowed to show and, and be ourselves in, in that moment of how we're feeling and, and coping. But I think that if we're beginning to see that people are losing focus of meaning, then that needs to be a time to worry. And, and Jeff, please interject. So I think that we may not see our fellow brothers and sisters being happy. There's a decreased level of overtime with some of the organizations I'm working with. And so, you know, a lot of people rely on that extra money, um, not preparing for a time like this. But I think let, it's let me, really when we lose – yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Well, no, I, I just wanted uh, – because I always I, – I forget. I tend to get – I'm getting older, so I tend to forget things. But I wanted to interject. One late sign that we have started seeing, and I really stress this, is when our members start calling in sick for work. When we start seeing this, we really need to be proactive for that member. Great. Good to know. Thank you for sharing. And, and on, yeah. on a whole, yeah, thank you, Jeff. And on a whole other thing, I think one of our action items as, as we propel forward in this, because we will get through this, is really utilizing your safety and health committee um, chairperson, whoever it is, depending on your department and your state requirements, because it varies from state to state. But, you know, I know uh, there's a particular state up in the northern states you have to meet once biannually. Uh, I don't think this is a time for you to meet once biannually. I think this is something where you really need to uh, be meeting on a more regular basis. So if you have a safety and health uh, a program um, or, or committee, this is a time that we really need to encourage these personnel to come together and ensure that we're looking at, uh, you know, risk management for the vehicles and infection control. Uh, what is, when's the last time the infection control policy was, was updated? Is it up to date with NFPA 1581? Um, you know, and, and what is the decom procedure for fire department facilities and the emergency vehicles? And there's a pillar there to mental health. And I think there's a lot of conversations that we need to spark during this time as we propel forward three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months from now. Yeah, let me add um, 
I have templates on creating behavioral health programs, uh, guidelines and policies for departments. And if any departments want those, just email me, uh, once again, jdill at ffbha.org, and, and I'll send them to you. I'll send them policies on, on chaplain responses, guidelines and policies on behavioral health, peer support teams, uh, anything that I have, uh, I, I will give to our brothers and sisters. And so uh, just, just email me, and, and I'll send you that information. Jeff, thank you for offering that up. All right, as we wrap up, uh, does anybody else have anything they'd like to uh, share with us before we uh, we wrap up this podcast? Then? No, sir. This, uh, just thank you for the opportunity. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Peter. Thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, Mathis, I'm, uh, glad, uh, I'm glad things worked out for you and your, your crew uh, that nobody um, uh, tested positive, so I'm glad to hear that. All right, everybody, again, if you, if you um, haven't been on Firehouse.com yet, on the Firehouse.com uh, website, we do have a COVID-19 page. It's just Firehouse.com slash COVID-19. If you go there, you can find all of our resources for um, response as well as news articles, guidelines that companies are sharing, et cetera. Um, and then on the podcast player page, we will have information from Jeff Dill, and uh, Ryan as well um, with different links to different things that were mentioned during the program. So gentlemen, thank you so much. And uh, we uh, hope that you all stay safe. Thank you. Thank Peter, you. Uh, thank you thank, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Peter, for all your support uh, of uh, our brothers and sisters as well as FBHA. So thank you, sir. At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as an athletic gear for firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your turnout gear. Get the full story at msafire.com globe.